Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll give us alert minds and open hearts to learn what there is for us to learn this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Trust. Trust is a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability or strength of someone or something. Now, I don't know whether you found that definition helpful because most of us sort of know instinctively what trust is. Perhaps you played trust games when you were growing up. You know, that game where you, one of them, you stand like this and you fall backwards and you've got to stay stiff and you've got to trust that the person behind you will catch you. And they sort of let you fall as far as they can before they catch you to make it harder. Or perhaps you once found yourself blindfolded and being verbally led through an obstacle course by someone and you had to trust they wouldn't, you know, send you into a chair or to a, a door or side of a door or something like that. Um, but, of course, trust isn't just for games. We have to place our trust in people and things all the time. Uh, when you got in your car this morning to come here, you presumably trusted that it would get you here. When you sat on the chair you're sitting on, you presumably trusted that it wouldn't collapse under your weight. And so we really have to place our trust in people and things all the time as we go through life. But the question is, where do we place our trust? Because some things are trustworthy and reliable and other things are less so. Now I guess our level of trust in something or someone should really depend on our perception of how trustworthy they are. Uh, last year the ABC conducted a survey which they called the Australia Talks Survey and an awful lot of results came out of that, one of which was uh, the level of trust people feel towards people in certain jobs. Which are the more trustworthy jobs and professions, you may wonder? Well, and I have to tell you that for some reason teachers weren't on the list. I don't know why that was, but let's assume they would have been high. But top of the list, doctors and nurses, 97% of people trust them. Next, scientists, 93% of people trust them. And then we get police, 84%, judges, 80%, military personnel, 76%, journalists, 54%, union leaders, 32, coming in behind union leaders, religious leaders, 29%, politicians, 19, and celebrities, 8. (laughs) Interesting. Now, even people in the more trustworthy areas, though, can sometimes let us down. Journalists can print lies. Scientists can twist results. Doctors can exploit patients. And even our loved ones can let us down and even we ourselves can let ourselves down. Uh, Some some of us can't be trusted. They can't trust themselves, say, with money. Some people can't trust themselves with alcohol. Some people can't trust themselves with chocolate. Some people can't trust themselves with a computer late at night. Um, We all let ourselves down. So who can we ultimately trust? And at this point, you know exactly who I'm going to say you can ultimately trust, don't you? You know what I'm going to say next, don't you? And you're right, because the Bible tells us that we can ultimately trust God. But it's so easy to say that, but sometimes it's much harder to genuinely do it, particularly when we're under some sort of pressure where trusting has some sort of risk or cost attached to it. 
Now today we're commencing our Term 1 series, as Daniel mentioned. We're looking at Genesis chapters 12 through to 50. The series is entitled Faith of Our Fathers. And in today's passage, which is Genesis 12 to 15, some of which was read to us, but the rest I'll tell you about, so that's okay, we see uh, what trust in God does look like and what it doesn't look like for Abraham. And as we look at Abraham's experience of trusting God, uh, there will be some things for us, I guess, to be encouraged by, to take note of, to meditate over, to be warned by. And I've entitled this morning's talk, Abraham, the man who trusted. And the main points, as usual, are set out on the insert you would have received and will be on the screen behind me. Firstly, I want to consider trust called for, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Then the rest of Genesis 12 through to 14, trust tested. And then finally, trust affirmed in Genesis 15. So that's where we're going. Firstly, trust called for, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now, I suspect that many of you would know that Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is really one of those golden passages in the Bible. It contains key promises made by God which ultimately lead to Jesus. Let me remind you of those verses. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now you know that passage is all about promises but I don't want to talk about promises just yet because I want to tell you, did you notice how many times the word blessing or blessings were mentioned in those few verses? The word blessing or bless is mentioned five times. There's I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and all will be blessed through you. There's a multitude of blessing going on, a plethora of blessing, an abundance of blessing. Now, what do you think God is like in your quiet moments when you're at home by yourself reflecting? Are you ever tempted to think that sometimes God can be a little mean, a little stingy, that he grudgingly gives you things on occasions when he can't really help it? Well, I don't know. But after, if you know what's happened in Genesis, before Genesis chapter 12, after the fall, after the evil that led to the flood, after the evil which was associated with the Tower of Babel, you might have blamed God if by the time he gets to Genesis chapter 12, he's not just a little bit put out with humanity. It might be a bit grudging or stingy or even a little mean. Yet, What we read here is in Genesis 12, God is looking to shower an abundance of blessing onto Abraham. Now, can I say it's the same for us today. God has, if we're followers of Jesus, God has showered an abundance of blessings on us. God is showering blessings on us and God has more blessings in the future which will be showered onto us. Now, if we're Christians, we can appreciate that we have a restored relationship with God that we're adopted into God's family, that the guilt of our sin has been removed, that the stain has gone, that our sins have been forgiven, that we stand righteous before God, that we have access to peace, we have access to power, we have access to purpose, we have access to wisdom. God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We look forward to eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's to say nothing of the joys which we can experience with our wisdom of relationships on earth, the creation in the world about us, human creativity, human athleticism, relationships, etc., etc. Now, we all know 
there is an awful lot of suffering in the world, but let's not lose sight of all the blessings that God has, does and will give us as followers of Jesus. God is a God who gives blessings. Now, the blessings which God is going to give to Abraham here include those famous things, the promised land to his descendants, that he'll become the father of a great nation and that all peoples will be blessed through him. But, you probably knew all that, but did you know that there are three commands to leave things associated, I think, with those three blessings? So, God says to Abram, leave your country. Go to the land I'll show you. He says, leave your people. I'll make you into a great nation. And leave your father's household. And all peoples will be blessed through you. Now can I say, that's some pretty significant leaving which is being asked of Abram here. I mean, imagine leaving your country to go and live in a different country. And remember, it was less of a global village back then. You know, think about, perhaps you might want to think of the English coming to Australia in 1788. They get off the boat, uh, different landscape, different flora, different fauna, different inhabitants, a very alien land. Not the easiest thing to go to a new country. Leaving your people and the, the associated culture. You go to a new culture, what do you get? You get culture shock. Now, uh, in our second year of marriage, Shireen and I went on a holiday which took us to Kenya. And uh, we had a week in Kenya. Uh, I was keen for, uh, for Shireen to see a country I loved where I'd done some lecturing uh, to meet people I'd worked with and have her experience a little bit of Kenyan life. And in the first few days, we were very well looked after by our hosts, but we also saw poverty. Uh, we heard foreign languages. We visited an aid ministry. We went to a church in a slum where Shireen was asked impromptu to play a piano in which only the black keys worked, not the white keys, not the easiest thing in the world. Um, and uh, we packed ourselves onto crowded public transport and eventually one afternoon we had the chance to visit an expat cafe where I think we sat down to Earl Grey tea and sticky date pudding. When the Earl Grey tea and sticky date pudding landed on the table in front of us and Shireen looked at them and their familiarity, she just goes, oh. I mean, the culture was so different that it had been exhausting us. I mean, the first time I went to Africa, I was exhausted for two days. You know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to change culture, even in a little simple thing like that. Leaving your father's household where people know you is not the easiest thing in the world. God promises great blessings to Abram and his descendants, but it's a real challenge to leave the familiar, or I imagine it must have been. Now, can I say that today God will often call us to face the challenge of leaving and for many Christians, it's a challenge of leaving a familiar country. But for us, it may be leaving something else. Have you considered that every single missionary who our church supports has had to face this challenge of leaving their country? Uh, during the week, I was around at, uh, visiting Michael and Joe Charles, who this weekend are returning to Chile for their next stint of missionary service there. And this time, they leave behind all four of their children. Their children are about 17 to 23. This time, it's just the two of them going back. Now, there's some leaving going on there, isn't there? Now, it may be that God is giving you, at the moment, the challenge of leaving behind something that may be comfortable or that maybe you hold dear. I don't know. But if God is asking you to leave something at the moment, will you trust God? Well, God calls Abraham to leave the familiar, to go to the promised land. How does he do? Does he trust God? Which brings us to our second point, trust God. Tested, chapters 12 to 14. 
Now, in most of these chapters, Abram actually does really quite well. Most of the time. God calls Abraham to go and in Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 to 9, he goes. Verse 5, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. If only he and we were always so quick, as quick as that to trust and obey. Off to a good start. But then in the second half of chapter 12, which wasn't read to us but which I'll tell you about, he seems to have something of what I would describe as a total brain explosion. What happens is that a severe famine strikes the land and Abram and his those with him go down to Egypt. Now there's some discussion as to whether going to Egypt was a good thing or a bad thing for Abram to do, whether it showed trust or not trust, who knows. But what happens next uh, indicates a total lack of trust in God. Uh, because, and what he does is pretty much faces universal condemnation. Now as Abram went down he recognised that his wife Sarai was actually a very good looking lady and he was concerned that when he got to Egypt the Egyptians might want to kill him so that they could get to her. And I say I've got a lot of sympathy with this because I face this sort of challenge when I'm travelling with Sharon all the time. Anyway, <laughs> Abraham, or Abram as he then was, decides to lie and say, Sarai is my sister. And sure enough, Pharaoh is actually impressed with Sarai and takes her into his house. And not for a sightseeing tour, I hasten to add, but to be his wife. Abraham, or Abram as a consequence, is treated well. So, what's in effect happened? So that Abram can be safe and treated well, he in effect says, here, have my wife. I mean, it's a despicable act, isn't it? Eventually the trick is discovered. Pharaoh uh, sends Abram and Sarah on their way and of course it is deplorable uh, behaviour. But here's the point. Big brain explosion, absolute A-grade level one stuff up, total lack of trust in God, deplorable treatment of his spouse but it's not the end of the line for Abram and God. You see, God doesn't abandon him. Abram comes back from this and goes on to show some really quite admirable trust and obedience at various times in his life that follows in subsequent events. Now, this is really encouraging because none of us live copybook Christian lives. And perhaps some of us look back on what we consider to be A-grade, level one stuff-ups in our life. And sure, we may have to live with the consequences of those actions to some extent, but if we're Christians, we're forgiven by God for them and we can still be greatly used by God after those major stuff-ups. The Apostle Peter is a perfect example. Think how he stuffed up in the Garden of Eden, but then God continued to use him. If you're sitting here this morning thinking I have just really made a, a level one failure in the past, God is not through with you. God still has good things for you to do as you follow him. He did for Abram. Well, is next tested in chapter 13 by family conflict. Probably something not unusual to all of us. You see, Abram had all these cattle and, his herdsmen, and he had herdsmen. Lot, his nephew, who's part of Abram's family group, he has cattle and herdsmen. Abram's herdsmen, Lot's herdsmen, arguing with each other, there's not enough herds, there's not enough space or land for our cattle. What should Abram do? Now, I'll tell you what he could have done. He could have thought, I'm the senior guy here. Lot, you get your guys, you get out of here. But he doesn't. What he does is he says to his nephew Lot, Lot, 
You guys choose which part of the land you would like and you have it. I'll go somewhere else. Basically, he gives his nephew the first choice. Now, I think that's pretty generous. But imagine how many family dramas could be avoided if people took an approach like that. Put the other person's interests first. You know, Abram seems to be trusting God again here. And then he goes from strength to strength because in chapter 14, uh, Abram finds himself amidst a war. A war breaks out in the area of Canaan. Uh, Four kings from what would be described as modern-day Iran, Iraq and probably Turkey come down into the land of Canaan, take on the local kings and defeat them. And in the process of that, Abram's nephew Lot is taken captive and carted off. Abram hears about this and then we realise what a versatile man Abram really is because he puts together an army. He pursues those who have Lot, who has Lot, he defeats them, he rescues Lot and comes back. Wow, pretty impressive. How did it happen? Well, someone in chapter 14 tells us how it happens. And if you've ever heard the name Melchizedek, perhaps because you've wanted to name your child Melchizedek or something like that and you want to know where does the name come from, well, we read about Melchizedek who was a priest king in Genesis 14. He comes to Abram after that successful pursuit and recovery operation and he says in verse 20, Praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hands. See, he recognises that it's God who's been with Abraham, looking after him and giving him the victory. God is continuing to look after and bless him. Now, in chapters 12 to 14, you've seen that Abram's faith has been tested a number of times and in chapter 15, it's going to continue to be tested. And we see throughout scripture that God's people are always tested in their faith. Peter was tested. Paul was tested. Mary and Martha were tested in their faith. And can I say that you and I will be regularly tested in our faith as well. It is going to happen. How will we go? We might sometimes we might recall that God loves us. Yet what happens when things which we find difficult to come our way? Last Saturday, yesterday week, I went to uh, an afternoon tea which was uh, wishing Bishop Ivan Lee farewell as he retires as Bishop of Western Sydney. Whole lot of us turned up. When we got there, we learned that Bishop Ivan Lee was too well to, unwell to attend and he'd been in um, hospital for a few weeks. And uh, from what I gathered from the explanation, uh, Bishop Lee, who was sick with cancer, uh, I, I picked up the idea that maybe this, he might be at the really serious end of it now. Now, can I say that he and his family are clearly being tested and their faith is being tested. But I say from what I've heard is that God is giving them the capacity to stand up under that testing. They are trusting God from what I've heard in what will be a very difficult situation. So when we're being tested, why don't we pray that God would help us to trust him even when it's very, very difficult. Chapter 15, point three, trust affirmed. What happens when you stand up to a bully? Someone's bullying you. You stand up to them, they back down. What's going to happen next? Well, one of two things may happen next. The bully may leave you alone or they may go off and get their friends and come back and really give you a hard time. Now, I suspect that's how Abram felt at the start of 15. He's just chased one of these invading kings, overcome them in battle, got Lot back, returned to his land. Now, either those kings will just say, oh, well, whatever, let's just leave him alone, or they might think, right, we'll show him, get together a stronger force 
and come back and hit him in a big way. So Abram, I suspect, at the start of chapter 15 would have been a little fearful that this might happen, which is why I think God allays his fears in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God kindly reassures him that he's looking after him. But then, after this incredible victory and God's kind affirmation, Abraham lapses, I think quite understandably, into fear and doubt. He is concerned about his childlessness or his wife's childlessness, their childlessness, and why wouldn't he? Most couples want children. And in certain cultures, uh, having children or not having children is even more culturally significant than in our culture. And then Abram has actually changed countries, presumably partially based on the promise that he'll be the father of a great nation. Where are these kids? He may be thinking. But God kindly and gently affirms that he will have children. He said he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And of course that was the case. We read that Abraham did have a son and that his descendants have become as numerous as the stars of the sky considering the people of Israel in the Old Testament and in fact all God's people today are referred to as children of Abraham which includes us if we're Christians. God kept his promise. And then um, we also read in verse 6 that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, His right standing with God was not because he was perfect but because of his trust or his faith with God. So too with us today. If we are in right standing with God, it's not because we're perfect. I mean, for goodness sake, we're not. It's because our faith, our trust in God is credited as righteousness. Our trust in Jesus' death for us relieves us of the burden of our sins and the punishment that deserves. Our faith is credited as righteousness, then as now. And then finally, uh, Abram raises one final concern. He says, look, am I ever going to get this land? I've been dwelling here as a sojourner. Are we ever going to own it? And then there was that really quite unusual, weird covenant ceremony which we heard about in verses 7 and onwards, you know, with the animals and the going between the animals. From what we understand, this was some sort of ancient Near East covenant ceremony whereby someone would make a promise. And here God is making his promise to Abram again. It says in verse 18 that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants I will give this land. Once again kindly deals with his concerns. Now, a quick aside. Did you notice verse 16 of chapter 15? Let me read it for you. It says, In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, that's a really interesting verse because often you will hear people criticise God or the God of the Old Testament for engaging in indiscriminate massacres or ethnic cleansings. Uh, There was a theologian who became an atheist called Gerd Ludemann who was of this view. He wrote that the command to exterminate uh, is extremely offensive and he is far from alone. Yet, the Bible tells us that God is merciful and just. And what this verse shows us is that God does not indiscriminately think Uh, let's go out and send the Israelites to conquer the Amorites and get rid of them because they're inconvenient, they're getting in the way, let's just do them away. No, God actually uses the people of Israel to exact, I guess, just judgement on nations when they're acting in a really bad way. Now, uh, at the point 
of Abram in chapter 15, the Amorites were not, hadn't been sufficiently bad, I guess, to warrant this sort of just judgement. But by a few centuries later, it seems that they had, in God's view, that the time had come for them to be judged. And from what we know of the promised land when the people of Israel did take entrance of it a few centuries later, that some of the local practices included temple prostitution, bestiality, right? We know what bestiality is, uh, child sacrifice and other sorts of practices which I think would be abhorrent to pretty much anyone. And God says enough's enough and justice was enacted then. So God is just and he executes his justice justly. This is not just some random, let's get them out of the way and exterminate them type scenario. Verse 16, very interesting. Well, uh, in many ways the promises made to Abram are like the promises made to us today. You see, Abram at the end of chapter 15 is still waiting on the fulfilment of many of the promises. He sees God's faithfulness, he sees God's kindness in communicating with him, in comforting him, in reassuring him, in giving him victory in battle, in giving him wealth. But at the end of chapter 15... He's not possessing the land. He doesn't have a descendant. All nations have not been blessed through him. That has to wait for later. Now, of course, all those things were fulfilled later on. It's just that Abram couldn't see them at this time. Similarly, with us now, we can see God has done many things in our lives. He's kept many promises, the work of the Spirit in our lives, changing us, doing things of various sorts. We can look back through Christian history and Scripture to see that God always keeps his promises. But there are some promises which he has made to us which I guess are yet to be fulfilled. For example, the promise that one day we'll be in a, in a land or a place with no more mourning, no more crying, no more sickness, no more pain. We haven't seen that yet. It's in the future. Abraham saw God's reliability in the past and was learning to trust him for the future. Similarly, if we've seen God's reliability in the past, we should trust him for the future with whatever difficulties we feel the future holds for us. Bishop Lee and his family are currently trusting in that as countless Christians have and are throughout the world. So, Abraham was the man who usually trusted God and the big idea I guess this morning is simply trust. God can be trusted so we should trust God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it's easier to say that we should trust you but sometimes it's just not easy for us because we are so far short of perfect. Lord, we do pray that as we reflect on Abraham's life that we would see the lessons he learnt and the example he set and that we would be people who would learn to trust you more and more in the easy times and the hard. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.